Welcome back to the Digital Twin Fan Club. We are talking with Paul Clark and David Lane about their passions and their interests in the digital twin space at all sorts of scales and with all sorts of applications from manufacturing to our daily lives. And the interviewers are Simon Evans and Neil Thompson with a little smattering of Vicky Reynolds in there as well. So we pick up with Paul Clark. There's an enormous amount to explore and experiment with and learn uh, around this sort of smart, more automated future. And, you know, we've been talking about what you can do in digital models, but, you know, they have their limitations. And, and David mentioned Living Labs earlier, and they, they are a crucial step in all of this, because that's when you start exposing, uh, if you like, the smart machines to people and a diversity of unpredictable challenges and situations that uh, people are particularly good at generating. So, um, you know, very different from a test bed where you're trying to recreate standard conditions to put something through its paces. In a living lab, um, it's all about, you know, um, the unexpected and, and, um, and you learn from that. But it's also about learning things that are very hard to model, things like, you know, um, public adoption, um, ethics, privacy, mm. how do people, how do people feel, you know, these smart machines um, have to have cameras, uh, typically, you know, as well as GPS to be able to navigate. And how would you feel when uh, a smart machine comes to your doorstep with a camera? You know, are you going to be okay about that? Are you going to wonder, you know, uh, you know, what it's looking at? And, and, and why is it looking at you in a particular way or something or how it feels? And, and we're going to have to get used to that, or we're going to have to make people um, get uh, comfortable with that. And that's why, you know, trust uh, is going to be such a big part of this. And, and we need to do a lot of that learning in more constrained environments with living labs. But we also need to explore how these different smart machines will, re will react with one another. Because, you know, you may well in the future have um, a smart machine, like David was saying, that looks after you in your home if, you're, uh, if, you, if you need that kind of care. And, and maybe, you know, when you come back uh, from the hospital in, your, in an autonomous ambulance and, and, a, and a smart machine gets out and helps you from the curb, you know, maybe the smart machine that lives in your home that understands how to open your doors and, and you know, uh, and understands the topology of your home and, and, and everything uh, will, will need to be able to interact with that, you know, the, the, uh, the smart paramedic, so to speak, uh, that's dropping you off. And that... Um, uh, and that raises all sorts of questions to do with um, standards and, you know, how do smart machines talk to one another and interoperability and, uh, uh, you know, but also the whole nature of, you know, how they negotiate that kind of that transfer, you know, and, and mm. you're going to be at the center of it. So, so much to learn here. Um, and, and we need to do that in a kind of a, an initially controlled way um, before we start letting these machines out into the into the real world so to speak i think that begs the question then if we can't rely necessarily going back to your earlier point on machines to always be good always to have the best intentions um how do we then adapt our education system to prepare people particularly young people to the world that they're going to be living in and and then what comes first is it the education or the application do we respond to a world that already exists or do we try to create an education system that preempts? 
Oh my goodness. Now my most favorite subject of all, uh, as David knows, in fact, both for both of us, uh, we both have strong views on this. I mean, I, I think as part, you know, it, it is beholden if you are part of building uh, this smart, more automated future that you inevitably do think about what the unintended uh, or predictable consequences uh, will be. And um, one thing is for certain is, you know, we cannot play kind of King Canute in this, you know, these technologies are coming, they they will um, uh, be all around us. And we need to, you know, make the best of that. Um, and the, the one of the very few insurance policies we have uh, against um, uh, the unintended consequences uh, is education. And, you know, um, I feel very, very passionately, as David knows, he has to listen to it a lot of time, uh, uh, that, you know, we need to radically reform our education system uh, to be teaching the next generation for this, or preparing them rather, for uh, uh, this much more smart, automated world where, you know, um, it'll be much less about, you know, the knowledge that our current education system empowers and much more about the different, you know, making the most of the, of the qualities that differentiate us as humans and the kind of interpersonal soft meta skills that will endure that, you know, whatever the general AI debate may uh, uh, take us to, it's going to be a long time, you know, before um, uh, we are, those kind of skills are replaced. But, um, you know, David's a professor. I'll, I'll pass over to him because I know he feels passionately <laughs> about this too. Um, where to start? <clears throat> I mean, it's a great question, Vicky. You know, how do we educate people to, to be safe in a world with robots where you might not trust the robot? I'm not sure I have an answer to that because other than we try to make the, we build the robots to be safe and ethical and don't get that wrong. Um, but would be, I guess, my initial answer to that. But on the education point, I think what, what we've come up with in this notion of connected digital twins, the, the cyber physical, as we call it, approach to developing smart machines. Actually, with Living Labs and everything, actually gives us a huge opportunity to use that infrastructure as the basis for learning, for upskilling people at all levels, from uh, uh, actually from school through, uni through university, uh, through apprenticeships, through your life. Because if you've got that cyber physical infrastructure, it's like a campus, or it could be like a campus, where you log in from wherever you are, and you've got access to simulated and physical where that, that can be used as part of your learning journey by a teacher who's probably not co-located in space and time with you. Although you do, they will have to be at some point, you know, you can't learn in isolation. There's a social part to learn, learning as well. And, and that just, that sort of levels up, you know, wherever you are, you can, you can get involved in this. And kind of, the, it started to happen with with MOOCs and online learning courses and so on. Um, and then at the other end, the universities, are, as we all know what's happening in universities at the moment with, you know, the students are all doing online learning because, even though they're in the halls of residence because they're not allowed out, right? So um, it sort of, again, the pandemic's an accelerant and it, it, it's creating new models where, you know, academics have spent their summers converting all their courses into these responsive blended learning programs. But when it comes to doing labs, let's put it as crudely as that, they don't, it's not easy to do because they don't have the right infrastructure. So I, I think there's a whole other pedagogical change that can go on 
with the cyber physical infrastructure. In fact, we've started calling it in the, the robotics growth partnership, the IGP, we've been calling it the cyber physical campus. Um, and, and just what are the opportunities and how will, how, can, how do we, the sort of change Paul's talking about, how do we uh, bring that change about in a way where learning is centered on the student, on the person, on the individual. Mm. And it's not the kind of traditional lecture format where there's a hundred people in a room and somebody at the front joining on and everyone's asleep. And, you know, it, and there's the learning isn't, it may well be happening, but it isn't necessarily. In different ways. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and just to say that the, the bit that David rightly said is, is difficult to do is also part of the vision that we're thinking about, which is virtual labs, you know, whereas that's both, you know, labs that are kind of digital twins of a physical, you know, research lab, mm. and you can do virtual experiments in, but also uh, being able to use smart machines and robots within a physical lab and using teleoperation and, and um, haptics and things like that, be able to um, uh, remotely, um, you know, conduct experiments, physical experiments in that lab. And I think, once again, looking ahead, that's going to be really important uh, going back to the sort of international collaboration, because we've got to find ways for people to, you know, collaborate in those kind of research activities without, you know, jumping on planes and flying around the place. So I think, you know, there's, there's lots of other reasons why if we can learn how to create those virtual labs, um, it helps with leveling up and, 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 and access, but it also helps with sustainability. David. Yeah, it's just, I was going to give one practical example of how we've already taken a step in, in that direction. Um, I remember earlier I talked about emotionally engaging robots. I'll, I'll give a plug here, which I'm probably not supposed to do, but I will. Um, a robot from a company called Consequential Robotics called Miro. If you want to go find it, it it's, it's miro-e.com, miro-e.com. It's a, it's a no cross way. between a bunny rabbit and a dog. Wow, this sounds it's, pretty good. It's got, it's got <laughs> cute ears and eyes. You know, it makes cute noises. It doesn't speak. <laughs> although some of the researchers have made it speak. It doesn't speak yet, but it, but it makes cute noises. Um, you can stroke it and it responds. Um, and it's, it's emotionally engaging. And, I, and I, without going into detail, we've, I've taken it into care homes with the elderly and, and the nurses and everybody just go for it. I think. And they go, I'm stroking plastic. Why am I stroking plastic? I have no idea. I love it. One of the things we've done in consequential robotics with Miro is uh, started to use it in ed tech, in education, mm. to teach people how to code. Uh, and uh, we've put together a package called Miro Cloud, which is a virtual representation of Miro that you can code using, we use a thing called Blockly um, or Python if you're into programming. Um, and so simple programming, complicated programming to access all the features, the sensors, the motors, the, the um, and what we found is that even with uh, kids as young as eight or nine, they can completely, completely get it. And they yeah. can work initially in the, in the simulation in the cloud. And then once they've got the code developed, then they can download it onto the robot and run it on the real robot. And the real robot doesn't have to be where they are. So if you're teaching or learning and you're working from home, and this happened a lot during the pandemic, you know, the mums and dads are all at home with the kids and don't know what to do with the kids and how to get them away from the screens and, you know, get them doing something useful. Actually using Miro was pretty good and they could then download and work with the, the robot remotely. And it's the same robot that's being used both for kids as young as eight or nine up through university teaching 
Sheffield University and Herrick were using it a bit um, for teaching coding, but then up to researchers, researchers who are studying all this stuff about social robotics and how we interact and biases and, and the kind of roles they can play in um, cognitive support. So one platform can service all sorts of applications. And it, it, for me, it's, that's the first step towards cyber physical campus and a big component in it. It's been a big learning journey from doing that. And you kind of want to replicate it in other things uh, in other ways. And it's an interesting point because we talked there about the kind of trust angle. And one of the, I think we use the phrase insurance policies against people not having trust would be education. But is there kind of a challenge that if we're bringing about education to uh, how to interact and how to work with smart machines through living labs or otherwise, that we can then inbuild some type of trust and become blind to various, I guess, warning signs or applications. And I'm kind of thinking, I don't know how uh, phishing for details on emails, for example, quite easily catches certain demographics of the population who are maybe more trusting towards what people would send you because that's what they've been familiar with. Are we going to see maybe the opposite where you've got people who are more trusting in, in smart machines um, because of the way they've been brought up, but then pairing that with at the same time, looking at the kind of the lessons learned from the web and how the web has obviously brought about a lot of good, but at the same time, you've got branches of it that have been less good, you know, the dark web and other angles. And how do we, how do we kind of really guard against that? Because I can see what you mean, but it's also there's quite a few nuances, isn't there, that can make this quite a complex problem. I think, I mean, this is something we're living with. You know, I mean, let's face it, we've been living with this uh, forever. You know, we trust, you know, what's on the side of a, uh, a, a, a packet of food that we, you know, we might be allergic to uh, or we have to be able to trust that. You know, we trust... Um, uh, satellite, you know, uh, um, navigation apps on our phone, you know, that, you know, can take us, I, I end up driving through a, a something called a, a tidal road once, uh, because I, I thought, well, it, there's no way it would take me through this, you know, if it, if it was, you know, um, too deep, but of course it was too deep. Anyway, that was a lot of fun. Uh, so the fact is we, um, you know, we already trust, you know, a lot of um, smart machines around us, you know, uh, uh, quite frankly, we trust them with our lives, you know, we get in them, um, and they, they carry us or they, you know, they're involved in, in our care in hospitals, you know, so I don't think this is, you know, this is not new, it's, it's a continuum mm -hmm. in a way. And it's a question of, you know, it's back to David's point about that, you know, when you when when you're used to it you don't think of it as a smart machine or a robot i think all that's going to happen is um you know they're going to be a growing um uh variety and 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 mix you know uh, of of the uh, these different kinds of machines and it really is up to us to decide you know what we are going to trust them to do and i think in that what we have to remember uh, which is very much part of the AI debate as well, is, you know, the the baseline here is not some kind of new uh, form of intelligence that is somehow perfect. You know, we have to remind ourselves that these machines, um, we're introducing them into a, into a world full of humans. And humans, you know, humans have bias and humans make mistakes and humans get tired and humans are corrupt. And, you know, humans have groupthink and have blind spots. And and, you know, guess what? The smart machines will be imperfect too, and they will make mistakes. And, 
and and we're going to have to get used to that on their journey on that journey towards adoption and their their sort of maturation if you like um just in the same way that we we that that humans that are learning you know to do new things can make mistakes so pl please let's keep in mind the fact that they're not some kind of completely new um uh, uh form of intelligence that uh, is somehow um uh, uh impervious to um uh, error and making mistakes. Yeah, I just just build on that a little bit. Um, we, we sort of deal with that at the moment a little bit because we try to make them fail safe when we yeah. build them now. So, for example, I, I had the pleasure last time I was in Beijing of going to a robot restaurant. Wow! In, in the restaurant. <laughs> do you eat robots or do they serve you? <laughs> no, no, the, the robots. It, yeah, it was a hot pot. Oh, they taste. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oily, <laughs> crunchy. Yeah. Um, it was a hot pot restaurant, you know, so you're all sitting around the table, you know, and, and the robots were serving, but the robots were the most polite, well-mannered, you know, they'd stop in a heartbeat if yeah. you walked in front of them kind of stuff. So, and actually for the, the dynamics of the restaurant, what that means is you're always going to have people there because you can't, if you need a, a, another fork or something, the robot's not going to bring it over fast enough. So actually those restaurants are actually going to be people and robots at the same time, otherwise they don't work. Um, but we, but you know, self-driving car, you know, we, we get it to fail safe. Fail safe means it realizes it's there's something wrong, and it gives you back control when you're not ready. <laughs> so, wow, what is that? Is, how safe is that going to be? <laughs> right. Yeah, quickly, because yeah, you're, you're asleep or reading the newspaper or whatever. But, but my point is that you can, you, you can. Provided you can, the robot can realize it's not working, or, oh, and by the way, having a simulation running alongside it in lockstep, it doesn't understand how you yeah. do that, right? Um, then you, you can put hooks, hooks in there that the robot stops or it does something to, to mm -hmm. fail safe, right? Where, where it's a bit more tricky, and we're still exploring, I guess, is when the robot doesn't know it's made a mistake. Yeah. And we're the same, and, and doesn't know it's broken. You know, it's, it, you know, there's a sensor gone down or something like that. And, and how we engineer those systems to be safe in those circumstances is, is something we're going to have to work study. And that's why living labs are great, because you, you develop systems and allow them to fail in, in environments that are realistic, but kind of protected and safe. Controlled in some way. Mm -hmm. yeah. And my experience over many years of working with all sorts of robots is, you know, the V1 is, prototype is pretty flaky. The V2 might work a bit better. You know, it's V10 before you actually get something <laughs> that works, because ultimately you just shake it down and you find yeah. all keep the tires on it. It doesn't work, you yeah. know. And eventually you get something like an aeroplane, which is pretty reliable, right? And we get into <laughs> it and we trust it, right? You know, so. Uh, anyway. I, I guess it gets. This is an interesting question for us. I don't. I, I don't know how we're doing for time, but um, so we talk about version one to, the, to version ten, and I guess a question to Paul is. What, what version are you, are you on and how did version one go in terms of the, um, the logistics system that you've, you've developed? Could you give us a, an insight into how did you get, how did, how did you get, how did you start with that? Well, What's, I mean, you, 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 start? you wouldn't be surprised if I told you the very first thing we did was build, you know, uh, uh, a simulation, you know, um, uh, of, of the robot systems long before uh, we started bending metal or or um, doing anything else, and we used we used that to also um, generate you know synthetic data that we could use to start training you know the control systems, and um, you we could put you know a whole year's worth of data perhaps you know in terms of 
customer demand through a warehouse through that and explore you know um that we could try you know we're, we're solving a kind of a version of the traveling salesman problem you know um but with uh 3000 robots all trying to you know cross go across each other's paths and to orchestrate that you know uh, in a very precise way and so uh, there's a lot to model you know there and so a huge amount of the learning was done you know uh, in the digital world uh, uh long before we kind of moved and you're right i mean these are complex you know smart machines um they uh, can develop faults as david said what you're trying to do is get them to fail gracefully that healthcare system i talked about earlier was an, has been an important part in that puzzle because you're trying to spot the onset uh, or the signature of problems before they become real problems you know a, a battery pack is is perhaps its charging cycle isn't quite what it used to be you know the s curve where a robot accelerates and decelerates isn't isn't quite what it should be and maybe you've made a, a firmware change that you know mm. to part of a, a swarm and you're trying to see you can sort of spot there might be an effect of that so your um there's lots of ways that you can try and manage that um uh ultimately if if one of our robots um uh, fails out in the midst of uh, uh, the kind of the the hive or the grid where they're picking uh, you know assembling customers grocery orders you know then it's big sister you know comes out the recovery robot and the recovery robot goes out and picks out you know a robot the robot if it's um if it if it is you know uh, has not managed to fail gracefully and limp home um which is not is that, that literally common. how it works it's like a big crane literally comes down yeah and it sucks uh, them up yeah it's it's yeah it's 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 a, it's like a a, a a two by two robot that is you know and and that it, to answer the question that always get asked, well, what happens when the recovery robot fails? Well, the answer is it's, it built, it's, it's <laughs> built to be um, uh, very uh, redundant and it doesn't have to move so fast. And it, it, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, uh, getting there. It doesn't have to be as performant, you know, as the kind of the more kind of uh, Ferrari type robots that are whizzing around. Um, so it's... Um, uh but it's it's a it's a constant process of learning by doing you know and yeah. that uh, that's kind of got us to where we are um is through this whole process of uh living labs but living labs at a at a scale you know of a you could say of a business and i think you know one of the things that we now need to think about is you know how do we use the uk as a as a country scale living lab a bit like singapore does you know in order to evolve um smart machines and systems and solutions not only for our own benefit and to, to create um competitive advantage and 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 sustainability and resilience but ultimately to generate you know exports you know uh for this country so use use this country as a living lab you know as i say in the same way that Ocado built stuff for itself but then that evolved into a platform that's now selling around the world you know there's a there's a design pattern there that you know i think we can we can harness as a as a nation talk about the the national digital twin but the national living laboratory is an inspirational idea that i'm i'm up for signing up for how about how about you vicky and simon I mean, sounds great. Absolutely. And I think that's a really nice segue, isn't it, into what we'll be talking about next next time, which is about planetary digital twins, or I guess that's maybe a step above a planetary living lab. (laughs) It just makes more sense, doesn't it? It makes so much more sense than um, aiming for something that's just a a name of a process. Yeah. Anyway. Can I ask my 
and if it's too much of a, question, a question if it's too much of a question we can we can park it you'd asked your question actually so this is so this is this is talk about your living lab and your simulation yeah. and and correct me if i'm wrong there's an ideological difference between the way that your robots move around mm-hmm. in Ocado and the way the amazon robots move around so the amazon robots are more they go and pick up boxes of stuff and mm-hmm. move them around and yours is stuff mm-hmm. is static and it goes and picks it mm-hmm. that's that's right now massively more dense in our case than bookshelves yeah yeah okay so <laughs> in terms of from a, a living labs perspective mm-hmm. is is that it, in the simulation and let's, let's assume that both your simulations are equal and they've come out with different outcomes you know those mm-hmm. two ideologies have gone off in two separate directions what have you optimized for that they haven't and vice versa? What, how, how has that become a split between, you know, using robots to pick up um, items in a warehouse? So uh, we, we optimize very much for dense storage, you know, the ability to effectively uh, fill warehouses to the rafters. I mean, to, you know, um, uh, within 60 centimeters of the roof beams, which in fact is, it's so, it's so dense that the only thing you can get in there above the swarms of robots is another smart machine, which is like a small drone that can fly above the robots. And, and you can do that for monitoring as well as the CCTV and things. So, you know, that takes us to a whole other territory of how you use drones, you know, for surveying and monitoring and, and stuff like that. So, uh, which is part of this whole business about different kinds of smart machines collaborating and, and working as an ecosystem. Um, but of course, you know, it's also about smart machines that do the picking and the packing and the actual assembly of the order. And then before too long, it's about how do you have smart machines in you know in in the last mile and in the supply chain and and that takes us on to one of my other really big favorite projects which uh, which is the whole idea of physical internets how do you create internets of food and freight and atoms to move stuff around in a much more efficient coordinated resilient and sustainable way you know including the kind of cross sector cross competitor type uh, optimizations because you know that's the promise of autonomous vehicles. Um, uh, if we just have, you know, autonomous vehicles whizzing around, you know, half empty, um, you know, just replacing, you know, normal vehicles, that won't really um, drive the kind of um, greater sustainability and and efficiency that we need. So um, the smart services that orchestrate, you know, this the, this kind of behaviour and and find the opportunity to, you know, for somebody to drop off. You know a pizza at a hospital and pick up a bag of plasma you know that's 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 the kind of stuff that we need to get to yeah. um and, and and that's what will drive real transformative change in terms of how we move atoms around and guess what a digital twin of that ecosystem <laughs> that supply chain <laughs> ecosystem that's that where you start is the starting point right yeah I we're, in other words we're thinking about that for the food ecosystem in the UK for, for everything from for resilience, for sustainability, for food security. And, you know, it's another, it's a whole other podcast probably, but. Not on a local scale. Yeah, no, no, no. Scale. Pla- oh, on a planetary scale. Maybe we should talk about this in another podcast. <laughs> oh, we'll have to cap it there. Otherwise we'll, we'll end up, we could end up easily talking on this subject for quite a while.
I just want to say thank you so much to Paul and David for joining us today. I'm really, really looking forward to the next conversation that we have in a couple of weeks, like we said, on Planetary Digital Twins. And thank you for uh, the rest of my Digital Twin Fan Club cohort for joining me today as well, Simon and Neil. Uh, we'll Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> we'll chat to you all again soon and hope you had a great time listening. Goodbye. Take care. Bye. 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 Thank you.